2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. I will ask, would you please stand one time in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. But if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Let us pray. Father, we love You. We thank You, God, for the privilege to come and worship You this morning. We thank You for Your sweet Spirit here. God, we know that where the presence of the Lord is, that hearts are ministered to, needs are met, people are healed, the lost are saved, You are glorified. God, this morning we just pray that all of those things would happen here. God, I ask now that You would anoint me to preach in the unction of heaven, in the demonstration of the power of the Holy Ghost, not in man's wisdom, God, not in man's craftiness, not in man's strength, but Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray this morning that You would move on our hearts, that You would do something very special, God, with eternal ramifications in the people of God this morning. God, I pray that we would leave different than we came in. I ask, God, that You give us understanding to Your Word. And God, for a brief time, Lord, as we are gathered here, that You would help us to focus on You and You alone. God, help us to put everything off that's coming later in the day and in the weeks ahead. And, and God, help our attention, Lord, to, to be directed heavenward, Lord. Have Your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look at verse 12, just the very first sentence. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. I'm going to introduce a thought this morning that I am going to develop over the next two years. I won't be preaching on it every week for two years, but as the Lord leads, I will develop the thought. And that is this, we are kings and queens of God. If we died with Him, which Romans chapter 6 says we already have, you were, that's past tense, you were crucified with Christ, therefore now consider yourselves dead unto sin but alive to God. We shall live with Him, which we do, and if we endure, we shall also reign with Him. That word reign is a word that deals with kings. Being in Christ means that every true believer should fulfill the prophetic ministry of Christ, the priestly ministry of Christ, and the kingly ministry of Christ. We are to be more than conquerors. If you have been here on our Wednesday night services, you have known that we have been talking recently about the reality that God's people are supposed to be, meant to be, designed to be, and given everything necessary to be more than conquerors. And that being more than a conqueror is more than some simple term. It's not just saying the words and hoping it's true. There is a lifestyle. Second Peter talked about the divine nature by which we escape the corruptions of this world. There is a divine nature for the child of God. 
There should be an identifiable difference about the way God's people walk in this world compared to everybody else. We, my friends, my brothers and sisters, we are kings and queens of the Most High God. As prophets, we should proclaim God's Word. You see, Christ was anointed as prophet. He was anointed as priest. He was anointed as king. And Christ is in us. The same anointing that Christ walked in, so we too ought to walk in. Therefore, as prophets, we should all be proclaiming God's Word. As priests, we see the theme that you are a royal priesthood. As priests, we should all be working the works of God. We should be involved in ministry of some capacity. And as kings, listen to me, this is what I'm going to preach on. As kings, we war against the powers of darkness and help expand the kingdom of God. As kings, we war against the powers of darkness. That's what kings do. They go to war. They reign. They rule. And we help build the kingdom of God. There is no place in the Word of God for the attitude that we ought to go hide in a cave and just wait till the Lord comes home. There is no place in the Word of God where the attitude of the, the church is that we're just miserable, defeated, poor people hoping that God will eventually return soon so that we don't have to suffer through this world any longer. There's not a word for that in the Bible. We see they are more than conquerors. Paul said in all of these things, if you look at the, the most probably famous passage in sports, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's in reference to the hard things they were going through. He said, I, I'm paraphrasing, he said, I know what it is to be beaten, I know what it is to be naked, I know what it is to be without, I know what it is to be in lack, I know what it is to have an abundance, I know what it is to suffer, and I know that through all things, I can do all things through Christ. We are kings. And queens in the kingdom above all kingdoms. We are kings and queens, sons and daughters of the King of all kings. The Lord of all lords. The God, capital G, over all gods, little g. Do you realize we're in that kingdom? There, when you get a hold of that and you understand that, there should be a spirit of, of strength and courageousness that rises up in us that says enough of this walking around with our tail between our legs like we are some whipped little pup just hoping that our master will come and shelter us from the storm. No, ma'am, and no, sir, you, my friend, are a king, a, a son, a queen, a daughter of the Most High God. Now, with that said, like I said, we'll develop this over the next couple of years. But what I want to do is now go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And specifically, I want to start a sermon series this morning on the first two kings that Israel ever had. You can learn a lot about kingdom and a lot about being a king by looking at the first two earthly kings that Israel ever had. Next week, I will really begin to deal with the life of Saul. But this week, I want to lay some groundwork. I'm going to say something. Most of you that I see out here, you are regular attenders. And thank God for that. You ought to have a regular church attendance. It's very important to the healthy 
vital life of a Christian if you are connected to a good, healthy, Bible-believing church. If you're really going to get what I believe God wants you to get, if you're going to receive what I believe God wants you to receive, listen, it's going to take more than just this sermon. It's going to take me having the ability to develop over the next several weeks the life of King Saul and the life of David and its application to us. So we're just going to get started this morning. I thought about jumping right into the life of Saul because it would probably be more interesting, but it's very important that we just start at the beginning. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, and I'm going to, go, I'm going to ask the, uh, you guys back there not to put the passages up because I'm going to be going through four chapters. I'm going to go through them fast and it will probably be confusing if you try to follow me. So you can either listen to me as I read the Word of God to you, or if you want to have your Bible open, uh, you can follow me and I'll reference the passages. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, you have to understand that Israel has never had a king. They have always been led uh, by God's chosen religious leaders. We had Moses and Aaron uh, who led them out of the Red Sea and into um, Eventually, the promised land with Joshua and Caleb. We had the time of judges. But ultimately, Israel has never had a king. Their leader has always been God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see in verse 4 that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. You see, Israel had got their eyes on all the nations around them. And they said, you know what? The whole rest of the world works this way. The rest of the world, every single one, they have a king. There is somebody that protects them. There is somebody that they can go to as the supreme authority of, of, of their group of people. And we want to be like the rest of the nations. Israel wanted an earthly king. The downfall of any people will come when they desire to be like the nations. At this stage in time, Israel would now become a political force. God never intended for Israel to be a political force. They were meant to be the religious force of the world. They were meant to be the religious authority of the world. They were meant to be led by God and God alone. And we'll see that in our text. God was not pleased with their desire. God was not pleased with their want to have an earthly king. But nonetheless, this is what the people wanted. And in verse 6, we see that it displeased Samuel. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Here's what God said about it in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Listen to this. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Most people reject God because they don't want God to reign over them. They don't like the idea of having to submit their lives to the God of heaven and earth. They would much rather have an earthly king. And I think as we work through this morning's sermon, we'll see the air of that thinking, but we'll understand why people think that way. And, and, and we'll have to ask ourselves, are we guilty? 
Am I guilty of wanting somebody else to follow rather than God alone? Am I guilty of desiring a king, an earthly king, rather than a heavenly king? In most of our lives, the the place of the earthly king is us. We sit on that throne. We want to be the God of our own lives. We don't want the Lord to be the supreme reigning God. God says they have rejected me. And He said in verse 9, Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And then we see all the way through verse 18, God, through the prophet Samuel, tells the people, if you get a king, here's what's going to happen. Some of you are going to become slaves. He's going to have to take a portion of everything that you own. You're going to be taxed. You're going to have, he's going to take this thing at this time of year. He's going to take this thing at that time of year. There's going to be rules. It's not, he basically said, the grass is not greener on the other side. Everything in life has its pros and cons. The error of the, the, the human mind is that we want to think everything is just black and white. That being, having an earthly king can only bring about benefits. God said, no, it has a lot of negative things. There's a reason that I never gave you a king and that I alone wanted to be your king. And he said this. He said, you warn them. Here's one of the things we see this morning about God. God's Word always warns us. God's Word will tell you when you're going the wrong way. God's Word will warn you that if you don't stop, and if you don't turn, and if you don't do the things the way God has commanded you to do, there will be tragedy, there will be pain, there will be heartache on the other end. But just like the people of this exact time in history, most of us say, well, I think I know better than God and I'll just go about my own way. And then what happens? Exactly what God said was going to happen, happens and there are consequences to our sins, there are consequences to our poor actions, there are consequences to us rejecting the place in our heart of letting God reign from the throne of our heart. There are consequences to that. And then when the consequences come, we throw up our hands and say, whoa, whoa, hold on, no, no, I didn't want that. I just wanted the benefits of doing it my own way, not the negative things. But God said in verse 18, you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord, listen to me, will not hear you in that day. He won't hear you in that day. You cannot live a life of sin. You cannot live a life of, of rejection to God's ways and God's commands. And then in the moment of all of a sudden you're in the middle of your mess, cry out to God and ask God to shelter you from the consequences of rejecting Him. There are consequences of our sins. We're going to see that as we study the life of Saul. We're going to see that as we study the life of King David. God is gracious. God is good. God is able to take the worst situation and find a way to work it for our good. But He does not shelter us from the consequences of rebellious behavior against Him. So He warned them. But they said in verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us. Look at verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations. You see, the trap of the devil is to isolate you and make you feel like you're missing out on something that the whole world is doing. That's what the devil wants you to feel like. 
You're missing out on what all the rest of the world is doing. All the nations. You listen to me this morning, young people. High school kids. Middle school kids. Those of you that are in here. Those of you that are early 20s. Listen to the preacher this morning. Listen to the Word of God. The devil wants you to think you're really missing out on something that all the rest of the world is getting to do. And if you're like these people, you'll look to the north, you'll look to the east, you'll look to the south, you'll look to the west, and you will say, the whole world's doing it. The devil will want you to feel isolated. Make you think you're missing out on something that is so grand, that is so wonderful. But I tell you on the authority of the Word of God and on the experiences of my own life before I came to know Him at the age of 20, that it will eventually turn to gravel in your mouth. It will taste like poison as you swallow it down. It will destroy you from the inside out. It is all a lie. There is nothing that this world has to offer. There is no life outside of Jesus Christ. He is the way, not one of many ways. He's the only way. He is the life, not one source of life, the only source of life. He is the truth, not one side of truth, not one source of truth. He is the eternal truth, unshaken, and nothing can change that. Keep your eyes on Christ. Don't look to the north or the south or the east or the west. Don't look at the nations around you. The trap of the devil. He wants you to feel all isolated. Listen, you're not missing out. The world is missing out. You're not missing out on something. They're missing out on Christ. They're missing out on life and peace that passes understanding on joy that is unspeakable. They're the ones who are drinking from the poisoned well. Not only that we might be like the nations, but that our King may judge us, listen, and go out before us and fight our battles. You see what had happened to Israel at this stage in time. They had some bad things happen. They had had Eli's sons, who were supposed to be spiritual leaders, prostituting the priesthood for personal gain. They had the Ark of the Covenant stolen by the Philistines. The only reason they recovered that thing is because the power of God was too great for the Philistines to hold on to, and all of them became sick. They said, we've got to get this thing out of here. They had been through a series of times with the judges. Some were good, some were bad. And they thought to themselves, you know what, we would have a lot more security against our surrounding forces if we had an earthly king like the rest of them. They felt safer if they had an earthly king than just a heavenly king. And each and every one of us are guilty of the same thing this morning. If we're not careful, we will find our strength in earthly things. We feel safe and secure when our earthly possessions, when our earthly status, when, our, when the things we possess give us a false sense of security. Listen, Things are not bad in and of themselves. 
wealth is not bad in and of itself. We need wealth. We need we need things to be able to provide food and shelter and the basic needs of life. And, and wealth can be used to help people in need. We look at there's a tremendous need for wealth right now in Oklahoma in in the cities that were absolutely destroyed by the recent tornadoes. Wealth is not a bad thing in and of itself. The problem is when we begin to look to the things of this earth as the source of our security. And this is what these people did. It's not that they totally abandoned God. It's not that they had made up their hearts they weren't going to serve God at all or that God wasn't real or that everything that happened in the past wasn't really a miracle of God. They had not forgotten the Red Sea. They had not forgotten the the amazing battle of Jericho. They had not forgotten the things that God had done entirely. But they just thought, you know what, we'd be a little bit more safe here if we would do things the way the rest of this world does things. I'm here to tell you this morning, God wants to be the only king on the throne of your heart. But the Lord said to Samuel in verse 22, Heed their voice and make them a king. Tragically, God is willing to say to us, God is willing to say to our rebellious hearts, Fine, your will be done. Can I tell you this morning that God loves you with a perfect love? I could preach for weeks on the love of God and the grace of God, and I could not do it justice. He is a good God. He is good all the time. He is loving all the time. He is merciful all the time. He is gracious all the time. God is an amazing, great, and awesome God. But as great as He is, He refuses to force Himself upon you. He refuses to force force you to do His will. He says, I want you to believe me and love me. I want a real relationship with you where you are not some robot that does what you have to do because I force it upon you against your will. I want you to trust me for who I am and to follow me because you love me and you believe in me. And God is willing to look at us when He has warned us He has sent us His Word. He has sent the prophet to tell us it's not the right way to go. When we finally say we don't care, we're going to do it our way, eventually God says to our detriment, fine, your will be done. And this is what He did here. The consequences are often terrible. I'm preaching to you this morning the groundwork for how the very first king ever came on the scene. Why did Israel have a king? This is why. And we read in verse nine, chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He was a mighty man of power. And then in verse 2, he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Here we see Israel's first king enter the pages of biblical history. His name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. 
So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the lands of Shalisha, but they did not find him. Then he passed through the lands of Shalem, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. I want you to see something about Saul in the early stages of his ministry, in the early stages of his life. He went to Ephraim, Shalisha, Shalem, through the land of the Benjamites. He didn't just give up. His father said, go try to find these donkeys. He went a lot of places to do what his father asked him to do. Saul was a man of integrity. Here's what I want you to see this morning. You want to do something for the work of God. You want to do something for the will of God in your life. God always finds a man in His work. God doesn't come and call the lazy. You'll never find in the Bible somebody sitting on their hands doing nothing when there was a need to be met and God show up on the scene and say, You're my man. They were in their work. Jesus found almost every one of His disciples while they were what? Fishing. At work. He came to the tax collector of all people while He was in His work. We see that Elijah comes across Elisha while Elisha is plowing the field. We see that David, when... When, when, when he's nowhere to be found, what is he doing? He's out working. I'm telling you, God finds a man in his work. If you are not faithful with the little things of this world, how can you be trusted with the things of God's kingdom? And we see this about Saul. The point this morning is, is that everything that you do, you ought to do it. The Bible says, as unto the Lord. It's not just a job. Whether you work in a factory, whether you are a school teacher, whether you work in a small business, whether you work in physical labor, everything that we do, we need to do it as if unto the Lord. Looking for some way, somehow, to honor and glorify God with my entire being. I glorify God in more than simply being willing to come to church and worship Him. I glorify Him in the way I live my life. And here we see this about Saul. He was a man at work, doing what was asked of him. He was a man of character. And in verse 17, So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. And then in verse 10, chapter 10, in verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander, that means king, over his inheritance, that's his people. Here we have, in verse 1 of chapter 10, the official anointing of Saul as the king of Israel. In Old Testament times, when you would take oil and pour it upon a person, sometimes they even anointed objects that were used for work in the priesthood. But when you took oil and you poured it over a thing, it was symbolic of a couple of things. Number one, it was symbolic of the setting apart, the anointing or that person for the work of divine service. And then secondly, it was symbolic of the empowering of the Holy Spirit of God upon that person. At this moment in time, it was official, Saul is the king of Israel. 
But I want you to think about something for a moment this morning. They've never had a king. They didn't have cell phones to ring when service was going on. They didn't have email. They didn't have television. They didn't have cars. So communication was slow. So how do you take a nation of millions of people who've never had a king and now tell them you have a king? It was a process. It did not happen overnight. And if you read the story, it goes on, you'll find that Saul actually goes back to work. That's what he does. He goes back to doing what he knew how to do. Even though he was officially king at this moment in time, we're going to see this about David when we get to the life of David. When God places a call on your life, when God gives you a God-given vision, it doesn't always happen in the next week. It doesn't always happen when you wake up the next morning. If God has called you to something and you know it and God has placed it on your heart, don't be confused if there is a waiting period to get there. There is always a waiting period to get there. You look at Abraham and how long it took for him to see the promise. You look at how long it took the people to get into the promised land once they actually got over there. You look at Elijah and, and the three years basically that he was hiding until he came back to Ahab. We just studied Elijah a few weeks ago. You look at Jesus who spent 30 years waiting for his ministry to start. You look at John the Baptist who had a ministry of three years. One of them public, two of them in prison. When God places the call on the life of a man or a woman, when God gives you a God-given vision or dream, don't give up on it because it didn't happen the following week. Saul went right back to work. And God would now bring about what needed to happen for Saul to become the recognized, instated, and active king of the people of Israel. So in verse 1, he is anointed. In verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Can I tell you, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, it will turn you into another person. It will. It will change you from the inside out. And we see in verse 9, so it was, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. Here we have God empowering the man and changing the man for the service that God would call him to. God does not always call the equipped. But He always equips those whom He calls. And when the Spirit of God comes upon you, my friend, it will change you. You will know it. With the exception... Actually, I'm not going to even make an exception right now because I don't want to be misunderstood. I just want to make this bold statement. People who aren't sure if they're saved, people who can't look at an identifiable change in their life will never convince me personally they've actually had an experience with God. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, it will change you forever. Wash you from the inside out. Samuel had a new heart. Excuse me. Saul had a new heart. That's what God does. He gives us a new heart. He changes us. 
And I understand then comes the battle of the flesh and the spirit. Then comes the dual nature. I'm not up here telling you you'll be perfect, but I am telling you on the authority of the Word of God, when the Spirit of God takes up residence in your body, it will change you forever. You will desire the things of God. You will have a hatred for sin. When you do sin, you'll be broken over it. And you'll think, God, why would I do something like that? And you will long to be cleansed and pure. And you'll want to get back up and find out how to live so that you don't keep doing that same thing over and over and over again. That's what happens because God gives you a new heart. Now, God did this with Samuel. Excuse me, Saul. Which brings us to verse 24. Chapter 10. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? And there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, which he had already explained to them before, and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. Look at verse 27. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. You see, some people will never be satisfied even if you give them what they were whining for. People who are not satisfied with God will never be satisfied with anything that you try to do on behalf of God. People who say that this needs to be done this way, that needs to be done this way, and they're just constant complaining and they think something's wrong, you can give them what they want and listen, they'll find something else to complain about. We have to simply trust God, do it God's way, know what God's Word said, stand on the authority of God's Word, and say, God, help me to be honest about myself, help me not to be a hypocrite, but God, help me not to be turned to the left or the right by people who are simply never satisfied. Somebody will always think you should teach different, sing different, walk different, dress different, have a different accent, like a different style of music, drive a different style of car. Somebody will always have a problem with how you do something you're doing. You cannot let people control your life. You have to have a hunger for God and a desire to please Him and Him alone. So there's some division. Here's where we are so far in the story. There's some division amongst Israel. For the most part, all of them said, we want a king. We want to be like the rest of the world. And all of them went to Samuel and said, you make it happen. You're the one that has the connection with God. You go talk to the Lord about it. Let Him know what we want. And bring us a king. And Samuel does this. He brings them Saul and says, here's your king. And there's some division. It's an interesting time in history if you think about it. I mean, how do you go from... Never having a king to having one. I mean, how do all this stuff, what do you build, a castle? Does, does Saul just start making commands and people do it? I mean, how, how do we do this? It's a lot easier to continue a kingdom that's been going and 
Your father was the king, and now you just step into his shoes. How do you start something from the ground up? That's where Israel was at right now in their history. It's an interesting time. So Saul goes back home. They have had that sort of official ceremony where Samuel says, this is the one. Saul goes back home. Everybody goes back home, and there's still some division about whether or not this guy can really save us. Which brings us to chapter 11. The chapter where Saul really wins the hearts of God's people and becomes the king of their hearts. Let's look at the first three verses. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. What an embarrassing time in the land of Jabesh-Gilead, the people of God. One of their enemies that they were afraid of came to them and said, you got a couple of options. We can either slaughter all of you and kill you, or we'll gouge out the right eye of every one of the men and we'll let you live. Now here's what the elders said. They gathered together. They talked about it. They thought about the village and they thought about their their wives and their children and the state of everything. And they came back and they said, sounds like a plan. You can gouge out the right eye of all of us men, but hold on, give us seven days and let us see if there's anybody who will come save us. Now, Nahash said fine. He didn't think anybody would come to save him. We see something right now about the people of Israel. They are in a really terrible spiritual state. Can I say something this morning that might be as life applicable as anything I've ever told you? Remaining in a place of spiritual strength takes work. You cannot stay strong if you do not eat. You cannot stay healthy if you quit taking in nourishment. And you have to understand something about being a child of the Almighty God. God has an amazing plan for your life. God wants to give you peace that passes understanding, joy that's unspeakable. God wants to use you to glorify His name and bring Him honor and glory in your life. God wants to do all of that. But just because you've had a mountaintop experience or just because at some stage in your life you were really powerful and on fire with God doesn't mean that you're going to stay that way the rest of your life without any effort. It does take work. I mean, these people who are saying, well, sure, gouge it out. These are the people who at one time said, we don't care how big Jericho's walls are. We'll just march around it and let God bash those things down. I mean, they were brave, valiant people who had faith in their God. But as time went on, they forgot 
They quit feeding themselves, if you will, the Word of God, and their prayer lives grew weak, and, and, and they begin to look around at the world, to the north, to the south, the east, to the west, and they say, well, look at the way everyone else does it around here. We kind of want to do it like them. We don't like feeling like the odd man out. We don't like feeling like we're the only people without a king and that we get our instructions from God only. We, we kind of want to be like everyone else. And slowly, day after day after day, year after year, we now find ourselves in a position where they're weak. You need to understand, child of God, number one, it does happen. Do not think you or I are above it. We can get so busy trying to do the work for the king that we quit spending time with the king. If you're in this place and you can say, you can honestly say, yes, preacher, I know what you're talking about. I have been strong. I've been on fire for God. That's all I hungered for. That's all that I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden I found myself where I was just like this, so weak and humiliated, I just couldn't stand for God anymore. If you'll be honest with yourself, you might say, well, I was hurt, I was wounded, I left this place or that place. But if you'll be honest with yourself, what happened in that process was you quit hungering for the Word of God. You quit feeding yourself spiritually. You quit praying and seeking God like you're supposed to. And you got weaker and weaker, and weaker. This was the spiritual state of these people. Now I want to say before I move on, all you got to do is start eating again. Your strength is not zapped forever. I do not care how bad your situation is. We're going to see here. God's going to rise up. All you got to do is start eating again. Start praying again. Get in the Word of God again. Get committed to the Lord. Recommit yourself. Be like that prodigal son and come to your senses and say it's time that I get back about the father's business. Now, why did Nahash want to gouge out their right eye? I mean, why not just kill them? Why not just slaughter them? You would think that would be more humiliating, but it's not. You see, if he stripped them of their right eye, number one, there's no way that any of those men would be able to really be useful in battle anymore. Combat in those days, most of it was hand-to-hand. -hand. Most of it you had to have one, one weapon in a hand and a shield in another, or you were going to be toast out on the battlefield. Men who, if you take an entire group of people and you cut out their right eye, they become meaningless in the battle. And it actually tells us in the text so that, there was a reason, there was a purpose behind it. So that Israel would become a reproach in the eyes of the nations. That's what Nahash wanted. You see, that's what the enemy wants. He wants the church to be a reproach. He wants the world to look in and say, look at them, they're just a bunch of compromisers. Yeah, they say their God is so great and so big and so mighty and they talk about all the things He used to do a long, long time ago. I don't even know if those are true stories anymore. So long it happened ago. But where is He now? Look at their lives now. They are miserable, defeated, compromising people. And when we compromise, we destroy our ability to really be effective in this war 
of building the kingdom of Almighty God. We cannot compromise our integrity. We cannot compromise the Word of God. We cannot compromise the beliefs of God. Because when we do, we disable ourselves from being active in the war. Now, the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of all the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. These cowards had more faith in the power of their enemy to destroy them than they did in God's power to deliver them. All they did, they cried about it. Oh my, we're in a terrible situation. Now there was Saul. I love that statement. Now there was Saul. See, there was a man that God had anointed. There was somebody who just last chapter we read, God had given a new heart. Not a heart of fear. Not a heart of cowardice. But a new heart, a courageous heart. One that was anointed by the Spirit of God. He was coming behind the herd from the field. There he is working. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Look at verse 6. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. There is such a thing as the righteous anger of God. We saw it with Elijah on Mount Carmel. We see it here with Saul. Can I tell you something? God does not like it when His people are a reproach to the world around us. He does not like it when He, because the people look at them and say, well, their God must be powerless. God is not powerless. He is the all-powerful God. He still has the ability to give life. He is the One who spoke everything that we see into existence. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. Bless His holy name. He is still the great I Am, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the one Almighty God. He is our God. And we should not stand down in fear and be afraid of the world around us because our God is for us. And if our God is for us, then who can be against us? There ought to be something that stirs inside of the child of God some righteous anger when we hear about God's people being mocked, about God being a blaspheme, about the world around us thinking that God does not save. And that's what happened with Saul. Saul said, what are you weeping about? And he brought together a band of men. You see, it starts with one almost always. But it always takes a group of people to get something done. And there was a band of men that came together. Saul said, quit your crying and pick up your sword. How long are you going to live defeated? Who is this Nahash? Anyways, who is he to think that he can come and destroy the armies of God? You see, that was the same attitude that David had towards Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? That's what David said. Oh, I pray that within me, that within us, that within the body of Christ, that same spirit of courageousness would rise up and we would say, who is this that defies our God? 
He is still high and lifted up. He is still on the throne. He is still capable and willing to do everything that anyone could ever ask or imagine who turned their hearts to Him. He is still in control. He is with us. He is for us. And we shall not fear. So Saul, he stirred the people up. And they all came together. And it was in verse 11, so on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. They came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Ammonites until the heart of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that not, no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. The people said, who were those men a few days ago that were telling us, you know, that Saul had no business being our king? This here is our king. And now we see Israel's heart united. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I'll ask our worship team to come as I close. We now have the groundwork for Israel's first king. I haven't really preached much about the king. Next week I will do that. We see the rise of King Saul. Soon we will see his fall. But at this stage in Saul's life, he was a humble man. In chapter 10, he wasn't even willing to tell his own family that he had been anointed king. It's not that he was ashamed of it or afraid of it, he just... It was new to him. And he was humble. You see, at this time, God had everything going Saul's way. Saul had everything in his favor. He had a strong body. He had a humble mind. He had a new heart. He had spiritual power. He had some loyal friends. The reality is, though, with all of that in place, he would fail miserably because of this one reason. Saul never truly, completely surrendered his heart to God. And we're going to see that soon. And we're going to watch God have to raise up another king, the second king, King David. This morning I'm going to stop there. I want to say that I read 2 Timothy for a purpose. Number one, all of us to some degree are meant to be kings and queens of God. But the kings and queens of God, they're servants, they're not tyrants. And before you can ever really be the king that God wants you to be, the queen that God wants you to be, you'll have to learn how to rule over your own heart before you can ever help anyone else. God must have the supreme place in your life. You can have all the 
factors in the world that would seem to provide you security, as Saul did. I mean, Saul had it all. Except one thing. His heart was divided. And it would eventually dethrone him from God's very purpose in his life. Father, I pray that You'd move all across this room this morning. God, help us to see the desire that You have for Your people to be a victorious people who don't give in to the Nahashes that seek to humiliate us and defame Your name in the eyes of the world. God, I pray if there be any compromise in the lives of Your people this morning that we would repent of it. God, that we would come and be honest before You and confess our sins to plead for forgiveness, to know that the blood is sufficient. And in that moment of time, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then, God, empower us this morning with a fresh move of the Spirit in our lives to be men and women who live the life of being more than conquerors. God, I pray if there be anybody here this morning who is not saved. God, that you've just stirred the heart in the way that only you can. God, I pray that right now you speak with them. God, help them to just hear your still, small voice in the depth of their own soul, bidding them to come and find salvation in Christ. So you thought you had to keep this up, all the work that you do.